Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University. For many years, Donald Wright has been a member of the Department of Political Science at the University of New Brunswick. His book, Donald Creighton, A Life in History, was a finalist for the Canada Prize in 2017 and was actually the winner of the Ontario Historical Society's Donald Creighton Award that same year. It's one of the finest biographies of a Canadian that I've ever read. It's even-handed, clear-eyed, and it's courageous in its judgments. It's really a must-read for anyone interested in Canadian history. So Don is at his office at the University of New Brunswick. Don, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Listen, Greg, I'm delighted to be here, and I, and I should add, uh, I could listen to you for hours. I don't know about the rest of your listeners, but, but go on, continue. <laughs> well, we're here to talk about your biography, so tell me, this is clearly a history and a biography about one of the most prominent Canadian uh, historians of the 20th century. But I also found that it was a great history of the profession itself and the writing of Canadian history. So to start off, can you tell us whether, in your view, there is a major difference between biography on the one hand and history on the other? Yeah, that's a really thoughtful question, and I've been thinking about it, Greg. I don't think there's a major difference. I I think if history is done well and biography is done well, it illuminates the past, and it makes the past come alive and and suddenly make sense. But still, if there's not a major difference, there is a difference. I think biography is a genre of history, and like all genres, it has its strengths, uh, and its strength is it allows us to walk a mile, a historical mile, in someone else's shoes. But it also has its weaknesses. Look, uh, a biography is a statistical sample of precisely one, which is to say it's not very representative. Also, it tends to favor uh, the well-heeled over the downtrodden, because, of course, the well-heeled, the politically connected, the politically powerful, the intellectual elites, the business elites, they leave behind an archive, uh, Folks uh, don't leave behind, the working class folks uh, don't leave behind archives very often. So biography and history share a lot, uh, but they are distinct. It's a a, a genre of history. uh, And like all genres, it has its strengths and it has its weaknesses. So getting back to Creighton himself... Uh, many of our listeners are not professional historians, so could you give us a quick review of Donald Creighton's major contributions to Canadian history? Sure. Um, well, let's start with his books. Uh, the Empire of the St. Lawrence, published in 1937, established him uh, as, as a remarkable historian and as a gifted writer, and that reputation was confirmed with the publication of MacDonald's, his two-volume biography of Sir Johnny MacDonald, uh, which was published in 1952 and 1955, and both volumes uh, won the Governor General's Award for nonfiction. Uh, and by the way, I should point out that University of Toronto Press just reprinted uh, MacDonald uh, in, in 2018, so it's back in print. Um, his other books include The Road to Confederation, written in the 1960s, uh, and even in that list of books, I would include Canada's First Century, published in 1970. 
That book is flawed in many ways, but it it really is the historical equivalent of George Grant's classic Lament for a Nation. It's Lament for a Nation written by uh, by an historian. I think his other great contributions were, of course, his supervision. He supervised 19 PhD students over his career, and some of those PhD students went on to, to become uh, incredibly accomplished historians. You think of Peter Waite, think of Ramsey Cook, uh, Margaret Prang in British Columbia, and Jim Miller, who is uh, this country's uh, finest historian of, of uh, Indigenous, non-Indigenous relationships. So in all of these books, Creighton was the opposite of a highly specialized historian who focused only in one subject area his whole life. He wrote big history with big themes in a narrative that brought everything together like a novelist. Uh, in other words, he wrote books, not monographs. So you describe the difference between a book and a monograph. Clearly, Creighton was a book writer, and you wanted your biography to be a book, not a monograph. Can you explain the differences between the two? Yeah, when I think of a monograph, I think of a PhD thesis that's turned into the first book, uh, it's big, it's heavy, it's ponderous, uh, it's rooted in theory, rooted in historiography. Uh, the writing might be something like, this book will argue, and towards the end, uh, it might say, this book has argued. Um, and there's a place for that in academia, and I will defend the writing of monographs to the barricades. Uh, but I think a book aims at something different, something more elusive. A book strives to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It strives uh, to hold a reader's attention, uh, to construct a narrative arc, uh, and to immerse the reader uh, in the past, in a different place. I use the phrase, allow us to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. I think a book allows us to do that, in this case, to follow Donald Creighton. Uh, from his childhood in Edwardian, Ontario, uh, to his uh, final years in Brooklyn, Ontario, uh, where he was angry and disappointed and uh, bewildered by the change in the present. It, it's such a good question, the difference between a book and a, and, and a monograph. Um, I remember when I was writing the book, I, I put above my desk uh, one of my favorite quotations from Peter Gay, uh, the, great, the great historian. And in his book, Style and History, Peter Gay wrote, uh, historical narration without analysis is trivial. Historical analysis without narration is incomplete. And I wanted to write a book that was no less analytical for being readable. Uh, I think he really hit something, uh, hit the nail on the head there, that narration without analysis is incomplete. Uh, or sorry, that narration without analysis is, is trivial, but analysis without narration is incomplete. Now, going to the commercial empire of the St. Lawrence, uh, probably one of Creighton's greatest books, uh, and I'd like your comment on whether it is, in fact, the landmark that you describe and that so many others have described. I want you to talk about uh, the narrative arc in terms of the Laurentian thesis uh, and tell us why it was so powerful, but also why it also 
uh, was problematic in terms of what it didn't reveal? Right. Oh, that's such a big question. Very quickly, the Laurentian thesis argues, as many of your listeners will know, the Laurentian thesis argues that Canada, well, that British North America and eventually Canada were made possible by the river and the Great Lakes. Uh, The the St. Lawrence River and the Great Lakes allowed successive generations of merchants based in Montreal to penetrate into the interior uh, and develop uh, a commercial empire, a system of trade alliances with indigenous peoples. And that those trade alliances and that trading route, that east-west-west-east trading route, cemented what became Canada's boundaries in North America. I should say that people were galvanized by that thesis. Suddenly that Canada made sense. Suddenly Canada was not uh, built in defiance of geography, that it was built with geography. Uh, The problem with the thesis, of course, is that it's historical fantasy. Yes, he was right. The river was a key transportation route, no question, uh, absolutely. And it did allow a small group of merchants based in Montreal to, in some ways, conquer half a continent. But Creighton went a step further, and he argued that these merchants were proto-Canadians, that they were infused with this. Uh, proto-nationalism to build a different society north of what became the 49th parallel, separating Canada and the United States. And that part, and I think uh, Michael Bliss was absolutely right, he said, it was historical fantasy. Uh, And Jerry Tolchinsky, I think it was his first book, River Barons, uh, Jerry Tolchinsky at Queen's University, uh, argued uh, that the merchants did not imagine a northern nation. Uh, he argued that, that their bottom line was, well, the bottom line, that these were profit-seeking merchants. These weren't proto-nationalists seeking to build this British North American nation north of the United States. In fact, uh, they were pretty willing to join the U.S. if uh, <laughs> That's if, right. <laughs> if it was profitable to do so. That's right. That's right. In, in the Great Annexation Manifesto of the 1840s. So what about the uh, other blind spots in terms of the Laurentian thesis? Uh, French Canada uh, and the French-Canadian nation that was at the heart of the St. Lawrence yet uh, uh, very much uh, was ignored in terms of the British merchants that he was talking about uh, the West, indigenous peoples, uh, and even, in a sense, some of the Americans uh, that found a new life in Canada and became Canadian. What was, uh, how did that fare in the Laurentian thesis? Well, of course, I think you're quite right. These were blind spots in, in, in uh, Creighton's historical understanding of Canada. Um, he never understood French Canada. French Canada was a black box to him. He, he couldn't make sense of it on its own terms. So he always saw it as other uh, to British North America and later English Canada, uh, where British merchants were uh, progressive, commercial, forward-thinking. Uh, uh, the French were futile and static and, and uh, rural uh, habitants and, and peasants, that they weren't ambitious, uh, that they, 
stereotype, which comes out of Lord Durham's book, a uh, famous report. Uh, that stereotype, I think, blinded Creighton uh, to French Canada's role in, in Canadian history, not just during the era of the fur trade uh, and across the 19th century, but deep into the 20th century. He could never understand French Canada. And as for Indigenous peoples, well, of course, uh, they were destined to be uh, sidelined by the commercial empire, destined to be um, marginalized in, in, in the advance of British North America and eventually Canada. Um, he does exhibit some sympathy towards them, uh, but he certainly doesn't see them as actors in the way that subsequent generations of historians, uh, for trade historians, uh, Arthur Ray, uh, for example, uh, saw them as key players uh, in in the um, in the fur trade. And uh, let me ask you about uh, his great biography of Sir John A. Macdonald, originally in two volumes, and the and the way in which he dealt with Indigenous peoples in that volume, and the enormous sort of reinterpretation of Macdonald and his relationship with Indigenous uh, peoples, uh, to the point that uh, statues of Macdonald are being brought down in the wake of this historical interpretation. So where does Creighton fit uh, in terms of this modern reinterpretation of Macdonald? Oh, where does he fit? Um, I'm not sure he'd understand what was going on. Uh, his Macdonald, of course, was this heroic figure who transcended his contemporaries to build uh, what has become modern Canada. Um, he doesn't treat Indigenous peoples or doesn't examine Indigenous peoples to any great extent uh, in the biography. Um, he acknowledges that treaties had to be signed, but that really didn't become a focus in any shape, way, or form. Of course, he does look at the Métis uh, mm-hmm. and the Métis Rebellion, uh, and yes. he's incredibly unsympathetic uh, to Louis Riel. Uh, as as a person uh, and to the Métis as a people. Uh, and I should point out what was really interesting to me is looking at the reviews of, of MacDonald uh, is that he did get a lot of criticism from that uh, for that position. Interestingly enough, from uh, Western Canadian newspapers that reviewed in the old days, newspapers actually reviewed Canadian history. They don't anymore. That's right. Uh, but in, in Western Canadian newspapers, reviewers did criticize or Creighton for his treatment of Louis Riel. I mean, he was completely unsympathetic uh, to uh, the Métis and, and uh, their, their grievances. So this, this division uh, exists long predated the current sort of re-examination, is what you're saying. Well, I don't think MacDonald, well, they weren't talking about taking down statues to MacDonald in the 1950s, uh, but they were certainly rehabilitating uh, Louis Riel in the 1950s, absolutely. And what about the Rowell-Sirwa Commission? Of course, Creighton worked on that uh, yes. just before the Second World War. Yeah. And uh, he actually produced a major uh, piece of writing for the, the commission, 
And uh, the commission, of course, has been viewed by some as being um, recommending a more highly centralized federation by others as actually reflecting uh, sort of a balance between uh, the provinces, their need for greater resources, and the role of the federal government. But uh, describe Creighton's work on, on the commission and its impact, if any. Well, I can describe his, his, his contributions. His impact is more difficult to assess, of course. Um, he was invited to write a report on uh, the origins of Confederation uh, in the 1860s, and this is one of his first attempts uh, to, to study the Confederation Agreement of the 1860s. And his interpretation, I think, was in many ways uh, the standard line uh, in the 1930s in English-Canadian historical writing and in English-Canadian political science uh, that the Confederation Confederation, the, the British North America Agreement, was a highly centralized document. Uh, but through a series of decisions by the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council uh, over the course of the late 19th century into the 20th century, uh, that that highly centralized document had been undone. And that for Canada to meet uh, the realities of uh, a modern capitalist economy with its periodic uh, peaks and troughs, its periodic booms and busts. It had to build a welfare state. Well, how was it going to build a welfare state? It needed to be a highly centralized system. But by this point, the provinces, of course, didn't want to play ball with the federal government. Anyway, Creighton goes back and he looks at the agreement and says, yes, this is the historically accurate interpretation. We have to recover that original uh, centralizing thrust of the British North America Agreement. Now, what impact did it have in the final report? That I don't know. Uh, the, the archive was not clear, but we do know that the report did recommend uh, that the federal government assume control over over social welfare. Yes, that's right. It's it's very difficult to tell. And of course, there were other contributors to the Royal Sirwa Commission. Uh, and their perspectives differed from Creighton's uh, in terms of this basic issue. And that's true. And uh, Sirois himself was very clear. He asked Creighton to, in his report, acknowledge that there was a competing interpretation of the British North America Act. And Creighton did. Um, and that competing interpretation, of course, uh, is, is the compact thesis. Uh, Creighton did acknowledge that in his report. Um, and that was, I think, Sirois's uh, way of saying that there's not. This isn't the only way to read that. What happened in the 1860s? Now, your portrait of Creighton uh, is unflinching. Um, you get the impression Creighton was a very bitter man, unsatisfied, uh, difficult, very difficult to get along with. Describe his life as a professor and his uh, general in a sense, behaviors and attitudes. What was he like with his colleagues? What was he like with his students? Um, with his students, I think he was very formal. Uh, he would address them as Miss Smith or Mr. Miller, uh, and he had expected them to address him as Professor Creighton. Uh, he's been described as not only formal, but quite stiff, quite reserved, he wasn't chummy. Um, he certainly didn't go for drinks uh, with his students. Uh, he once said that a student had never seen 
three-piece suit. Uh, he took lecturing uh, very seriously. Uh, he took seminars very seriously, that a lecture, that a seminar. These were occasions in the life of a university and that you had to participate and perform your role, play your role. Jim Miller once told me a funny story. He was in a seminar with Donald Creighton, and uh, shortly before the seminar, he he saw Professor Creighton in his office rereading uh, intensely, rereading uh, the notes and the articles and the material for the seminar. Uh, and he was very surprised by that because how many times had the great man read, read these documents? How many times had the great man uh, gone over these right. uh, these articles? But he felt that he was his obligation. He could not go into a seminar and wing it. Uh, so as a professor, he was quite formal, uh, quite reserved, uh, but I think very, very dedicated. With his colleagues, that's a different story. Uh, I think he was difficult. I think he was moody. I think he was... Uh, quite hot-tempered. Um, his tenure as chair uh, in, in, in the 1950s, uh, second half of the 1950s, was an unmitigated disaster for everyone, for him included. Um, it wasn't something that he was very good at, uh, administration and, 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 and leadership. Um, it didn't play to his strengths. Some people are great administrators. Some people are instinctive leaders. Uh, but that wasn't him. His great strength and he always said this, uh, was research and writing. And all he wanted to do was to get back to his research and writing. Well, he seemed to me very self-absorbed, but also not particularly self-aware at times. <laughs> I think that's a very good uh, comment. I think certainly uh, those years as chair, he wanted the job because in those days to be chair of the history department at the University of Toronto was a, a, a real mark of status. Uh, so he wanted it for the wrong reasons. He wanted the status, he wanted the authority, he wanted the prestige to be chair of the history department at the University of Toronto. Um, but he did not understand his own limitations, or as you say, he was not very self-aware. Uh, he was not temperamentally suited to be chair uh, in a department with ancient animosities, in a department with strong personalities, and in a department with legitimate grievances on the part of the juniors uh, and their employment status. And he couldn't manage all of that. And as a result, uh, it was not a happy period in his life or the department's life. Well, uh, he did get along very well with uh, Harold Ennis early on. He did. Um, but his relationship with Frank Underhill, I think, is more reflective of of how he got along with colleagues. Can you describe that very briefly, uh, what the relationship was like and its evolution? It's interesting because, of course, in the late 1920s and across the 1930s, they were colleagues at the University of Toronto. Um, and I don't think the relationship was particularly close uh, but it certainly wasn't strained, and it certainly wasn't uh, fractured. Um, they were colleagues in the same department. But over the course of the 1940s and into the 1950s, something happened. I've never really understood what. There was no single event. Uh, I think Creighton was a bit jealous of Frank Underhill. Frank Underhill was 
much loved by the students. Uh, Creighton was respected, but he wasn't loved. I also think he saw Frank Underhill as something of a charlatan, as something of a fraud. After all, uh, you know, Frank Underhill never a brilliant man, but he's a brilliant essayist. He never produced the big book, uh, in his case, the big biography of Edward Blake, the 19th century liberal, uh, which would have been a great counterpart to Creighton's biography of Sir John A. MacDonald, the great 19th century conservative. He never produced the big book. So, again, Creighton saw him as something of, uh, of a charlatan and a fraud. And, of course, in the post-1945 period into the 1950s, Frank Underhill undergoes his own personal transformation from this CCF, League for Social Reconstruction Socialist, to a Mackenzie King liberal. And as you know, uh, Creighton believed that Mackenzie King was the Antichrist who had sold Canada out, uh, who had betrayed Canada's birthright, and on and on, shackled Canada to the United States in a series of wartime trade agreements, etc., etc. So he saw Frank Underhill as just one more liberal. Uh, in a long line of liberals who had betrayed Canada. Now, you spend a great deal of space on Creighton's married life, his wife and his children. Can you describe how his married life influenced his career as a historian? I'm so glad you noticed that in the biography because I really took that seriously. Luella Creighton uh, was a fascinating woman. Uh, who led an interesting life, a creative life. She was a writer. She was, she thought long and hard about things. Um, her novels uh, received some critical acclaim. Her short stories won some critical acclaim. Then she moved into writing history in the 1960s and 70s. So she was a, a really interesting person, and I didn't want to reduce her in this book to Donald's wife or Donald's helpmate. Uh, she was every inch his equal. And if she didn't have the same professional success as Donald, I still wanted to take her uh, and her her life seriously. How did she influence him? Well, intellectually, I'm not sure. Uh, I think uh, certainly in terms of uh, the practical labor she did in the home, it made his career possible. And by that I meant, I mean, she tended to the private sphere. She took care of the private sphere that freed Donald up to write his his great books. He didn't have to worry about groceries. He didn't have to worry about uh, preparing meals. He didn't have to worry about washing up or meeting the school bus. Uh, he was freed from that. Uh, and that's not a criticism. I think bourgeois marriages in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s did follow that model. Um, but I really, as I say, wanted to... to recover her voice, recover her life, and include it in the book, not as Donald's, uh, you know, uh, wife or helpmate, but as uh, his equal. But, uh, you know, as a writer, she could talk to him at a level of another narrative writer, and the two probably were able to, uh, in a sense, um, help each other. I think you're quite right. Uh, there was one uh, entry in, in uh, I believe it was her diary, but it could have been his diary. Uh, they liked to read to each other. So they'd spend the day writing. They had separate offices in their home. They'd spend the day writing. 
Uh, and then in the evening, they'd read aloud to each other. And Donald really wanted to get the sound of the senses and the rhythm of the senses right. He wanted to get the narration right. And she was not a historian. She was a novelist. She really wanted to get uh, the scene right and the dialogue right. So they'd read aloud to each other and they'd uh, offer insights or suggestions or, or, or corrections. So I think in that sense, they were they had this really interesting intellectual creative life together. So, are there any Creightons left in Canadian history? <laughs> are there any Creightons left in Canadian history? No, uh, I don't think so. And Because really what you're asking in that question is, are there any keepers of the Canadian story? And that was always the role that Creighton assigned to himself, that he was the, uh, the writer uh, and the guardian, uh, the keeper of the Canadian story. There are a lot of great historians, and some of them have appeared on your podcast. Uh, there's a lot of Canadian historians doing a lot of great work, but no historian today defines themselves as the, as the guardian of, or the keeper of the Canadian story. And that's because there is no single story. Canadian history is plural. Uh, it's something that Creighton simply didn't understand. Uh, I think Ramsey Cook understood that. That was Ramsey Cook's most brilliant insight, is that Canadian history was not, and he was, as I pointed out, uh, Creighton's student. Um, that was Ramsey Cook's great insight, that there was not a single narrative, the Laurentian thesis. Uh, there were multiple narratives, multiple perspectives, multiple stories. And again, I think that's a very liberating perspective, uh, and a very uh, democratic perspective, it, as opposed to Creighton's, which was closed, and anything that didn't fit into that was somehow beyond uh, beyond the the framework of Canadian history. Ramsey Cook and that generation's great strength was to open that frame up to include new voices, new perspectives. What it meant is, of course, we cannot have a single narrative. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's probably a healthy thing. Well, thank you very much for the interview today, Don. Listen, it's uh, been my pleasure. My guest today was Donald Wright. We talked about his book, Donald Creighton, A Life in History, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2015. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more out about the Society, including its publications, blogs, and more about these podcasts. This interview was recorded at the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University and was produced by Ali Joani Pernia Jamshed and Naomi Katz. We look forward to you joining us again. 